Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in History. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. Joining me today is Dr. Vernela Rouge, who will be talking about her recent publication entitled Economistes and the Reinvention of Empire, France in the Americas and Africa, circa 1750 to 1802, out now via Cambridge University Press. Dr. Rouge is an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, where she teaches courses on the Atlantic world, the French Revolution, European political economy, and the Enlightenment. She has also written about labor regimes and laborers in early modern port cities, 18th century abolition movements, and reform in both the French and Danish overseas empires. Dr. Rui is also the founder of Pitt's Early Modern Worlds Initiative, which I encourage you all to check out online. Her new book, Economies and the Reinvention of Empire, charts the confluence and reciprocal impacts of ideas and policies espoused by political economists, colonial administrators, planters, and entrepreneurs to reform the French empire in the second half of the 18th century. It also charts the key role of the economists or physiocrats in formulating new colonial doctrines that emphasized, among other things, agricultural development, free labor, and commercial liberalization. And the understudied continuities between the Ancien Regime reform movement and the imperial agenda espoused by French revolutionary Republican voices and subsequent French imperial advocates. Dr. Rouille, congratulations on your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Grant, and also thank you so much for that generous introduction. Our pleasure. So to begin with, uh, most of our listeners may have some idea of who the physiocrats were, but for those who don't, could you please just briefly introduce this group and their key beliefs and perhaps explain why you use the term economists rather than the more popular uh, physiocrats? 
Yeah, thank you. So who were the economists? They were um, a rather eclectic group um, that sort of circulated among the upper elites uh, in mid-18th century France. Um, usually we think of this group um, as having two co-founders, one being uh, Dr. François Quinet, who was a okay. doctor uh, at court, and then the other one being the Marquis de Mirabeau, who liked himself to be sort of a political economist, um, mm -hmm. and he was also a nobleman from uh, the region of Aix-en-Provence. And then they had very quickly followers within the um, um, political administration, but also among some of the sort of the, the leading journalists of the time. And the reason why I uh, opt for the term economist um, was because that was initially how they were known at the time. So this is the moment where there is an explosion in ideas of um, political economy. And they were sort of the group that were seen as uh, the, uh, the first group who thought of themselves as economists. They use in France the term economists. So I sort of also use that as a way of saying this is how they themselves thought of themselves initially. And then it's only later on uh, in the 1760s that they start from uh, um, uh, uh, talking about themselves as physiocrats and as uh, and the doctrine they promoted as physiocracy. Mm -hmm. And what's the origin of that term physiocracy? Yeah, people actually debate this a little back and mm -hmm. forth. Um, they, they see it as perhaps being uh, promoted uh, and coined by uh, François Quigny, who look back to uh, uh, sort of uh, Greek, the Greek language, and he, um, physiocracy basically means the rule of nature. Right? Mm. And so they like to say that their political economy and their science of political economy had looked to the laws of nature and then basically looked at how they could be applied to civil society. Mm. Mm. So much more of a natural law um, formulation in certain ways. Um, and, and, and I know one of their key core beliefs is the belief in agriculture as this primary source of wealth for uh, various nations. And that, that seems to me in sort of in, in some contrast to uh, manufacturing, obviously manufacturers, especially from the Dutch and English perspective of, of manufacturing wealth and commercial wealth as being a prime source of wealth and power for for nation. So is, is that a product of France's um, relative um, advantages in agriculture? Or is that something that physio physiocrats thought was just inherently a, a more sound source of, of wealth and power? Well, I mean, both François Quinet and um, 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 the Marquis de Mirabeau are inspired by earlier political economists in France that were sort of uh, had this kind of um, agrarian political economy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, of course, they're looking at their surroundings and they're responding to a, a, an emerging crisis of uh, the French monarchy, mm -hmm. um, the fiscal crisis and financial crisis that we know so well for that sort of starts to dominate from the mid-18th century and then, of course, leads all the way down to the French Revolution. And they're on the lookout for a way to find out how we can respond with this through reform. And they look at France as basically an agricultural monarchy, mm -hmm. uh, not, not a monarchy that should be uh, overwhelmingly um, catering to manufacturing interests. They want it to be a monarchy that embraces what they see as its sort of inherent strengths, which is agriculture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
that 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 definitely makes sense. Uh, so, how did you come to study this group in particular, and 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 this topic? What made you land on this topic? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I <laughs> I think um, my whole interest in sort of combining uh, French Enlightenment thought and the intellectual history of political economy with uh, French colonial history on the one hand, and sort of the history of old regime crisis and the French Revolution. Uh, grew out of a fortunate combination of undergraduate classes that I took um, when I was an undergraduate student, uh, where I had um, I was I was studying at the University of Paris, and I was uh, fortunate to have three different uh, classes in the same year that studied Caribbean history and the history of, of the Enlightenment and uh, the history of the French Revolution, and I was allowed to combine those classes in writing uh, my papers. So I got very interested in these ideas among Enlightenment thinkers of uh, the role of slavery and uh, arguments uh, against slavery and for the abolition of slavery. Um, and that, of course, I could combine with my um, studies on the French Caribbean and plantations, uh, the plantation complex there, both within the French colonial empire, but also within other European colonial empires. And then, of course, when we started studying the French Revolution, I was very struck by how um, uh, at the time, how little space there was for uh, discussions about the revolution in the French colonies. So um, I was able to combine my interest in ideas in the Caribbean with the paper I wrote for the French Revolution, uh, which became on the um, Society for the Friends of the Black, which is this mm -hmm. first French mm -hmm. abolitionist society in France that argued for the abolition of the slave trade during the French Revolution and also uh, ultimately the abolition of slavery in general. So that's how I initially got into uh, this topic. And then getting to the um, political economists um, of the earlier period, so particularly the, the economists, so the physiocrats, mm -hmm. was basically through reading some of the works that talked about the Société des Amis des Noirs. And mm -hmm. a few of them sort of mentioned um, sort of throwaway comments about um, this sort of their ideas for um, free trade, their liberal ideas sort of were. Um, um, in, um, uh, preceded in some ways by the ideas of the physiocrats. And then the literature wouldn't say more than that. So I just went, okay, this is interesting. Where can I learn more about these physiocrats? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I was fortunate to then go into graduate school. And then um, I was able to then develop my whole uh, my, um, graduate, uh, 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 first my graduate um, MPhil and then my doctoral thesis around that topic. Yeah, it's it's amazing what those undergraduate classes can can do and spark those questions and those books that you want to see that you end up end up writing or researching about. It's really yeah. great. Yeah, it um, is. <laughs> I think a lot about a lot when I now teach. You know, you wonder what kind of seeds you're planting in in the minds yeah, of your yeah, students yeah, and what yeah, they're thinking yeah. about and the connections they draw. And see those that literature five ten years down the road. That's really great. Mm -hmm. um, so so speaking of speaking of you know your book and the project and this sort of colonial and also physiocratic sort of confluence of ideas. Your book mainly focuses on reflect these reflections and ideas generated in and about the uh, Iles du Vent, uh, or Guadeloupe and Martinique and the surrounding uh, islands and Senegambia. Uh, can you explain a little bit about why you focused on these two regions in particular, rather than say the more prominent or economically profitable colony of Saint-Domingue uh, or modern-day Haiti? Yeah, yeah, those are good questions. Um, 
Thank you, first of all, for noticing that they are not actually so commonly studied for this period, mm-hmm. because that's also mm-hmm. how I felt. Yeah, um, But th- I came to those two regions because I, I started out with the ideas of, of the economists, right? And they are talking about um, um, these uh, suggestions for how we can... Uh, um, uh, create or, or produce sugar and coffee and cotton and indigo and all those commodities that we get from the Caribbean through this horrific exploitation of slave labor um, uh, from other regions where we don't have to tap into this kind of hor- horrible uh, labor system. And so they, they talk a lot about Africa where they, they believe that there it's possible to find um, uh, a huge market for free labor where and they have... Uh, territory on which you can produce uh, identical commodities because some of these uh, plants are already um, uh, indigenous to uh, Africa. So then when, as I was reading about this, uh, I, w- I sort of was thinking, well, so what, where, where are they inspired? Where, where do they get their, <laughs> their ideas from? And sometimes they started sort of referencing uh, histories of, of, um, of Africa. So in the form of natural histories that were really starting to emerge from around the uh, 1750s, particularly with um, the publication of uh, a, a botanist called Adanson, but also very quickly after after many others who had um, traveled to the French trade stations in Africa um, and and uh, come and then came back and wrote about their experiences and what they saw. Mm-hmm. And and then I got very interested in these uh, people who had then gone there, and I was thinking, okay, so. Um, Maybe if I go beyond these kinds of natural histories to go into the colonial archives to see uh, what's happening there, I will be able to find some interesting connections between what the physiocrats were writing and what was actually happening on the ground to better understand how their ideas are shaped. Mm-hmm. And so because I'm working on the French colonial empire, it's sort of like a, the natural for me to then go to the areas where the French actually were at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they had their main uh, trade stations and, um, and uh, the island of Gore in Senegambia um, and also trade stations up the Senegal River. And then the, mm-hmm. they had also um, um, uh, Judah further down the coast in uh, the Bight of Benin. Um, but I sort of focused on the Senegambian region because the French saw that as sort of their, their main uh, 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 stronghold in West Africa. So that was that was uh, the African component, and the uh, the um, the other side of the story. So the Caribbean was because, of course, they're also riding uh, almost against uh, 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 what is already going on in in the French Caribbean. And there, I knew through studying the physiocrats and their networks that they were deeply inspired by people who had um, held administrative positions in the Ile du Vent, so at Guadeloupe and Martinique. Uh, and as I write about in my book, particularly the brother of one of the co-founders of physiocracy, um, the Chevalier de Mirabeau, who is the brother of the Marquis de Mirabeau. He was governor of Guadeloupe uh, in the mid-1750s, so early to mid-1750s. And then, of course, one of the main uh, um, writers uh, uh, that were recruited by the Kini and Mirabeau, his name is Le Mercier de la Rivière, initially was an entendant at Martinique, uh, in the 50s uh, in the Ile du Vent as well. And so they really were inspired by the people who grew out of, of um, that context rather than Saint-Domingue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that Mirabeau brother correspondence is, is so wealthy and, and so rich. 
um, in, in their correspondence to each other. Um, and, and I really enjoy that sort of perspective and that question of, you know, where do these economies get their ideas from rather than just looking at their ideas? Um, so moving to the, to the meat of your work, uh, your first chapter sort of sets the stage in terms of the French empire and French imperial political economy in the mid 18th century. And you've, you've hinted at this a bit thus far, but could you tell us a bit in general terms of what France's colonial economy looked like, especially before the Seven Years' War? Yeah, um, so, I mean, it was sort of set up already in the early 18th century uh, in terms of its uh, trade and, and, and commercial policy in these letters, um, lettres patentes, or letters patent from 1717 and 1727. And within those, um, it's set up in the way that the the, the French port cities, uh, some of the key ones being uh, Nantes and Bordeaux and Le Havre and Marseille, and so mm-hmm. these places uh, have the exclusive and uh, privilege of trading uh, with the colonies or with the French slave stations, right? Mm-hmm. And so within the Atlantic sphere, uh, the, the, the political economy of the French colonial empire within that sphere is, is really uh, governed by these uh, later patents. And it also immediately, therefore, um, um, makes the colonists feel that they are in an inferior position um, to the French metropolitan merchants because they, in turn, uh, have to buy everything from these merchants, but also sell their cash crops, so their sugar and then uh, their coffee uh, to French merchants. And they have to also purchase the commodities that they provide. Yeah. So, yeah, so the exclusive is obviously is a um, uh, the dominant political economic um, system at the time in France. And and then it seems like in, in as in most empires, uh, the Seven Years War from 1756 to 1763 sort of makes all these empires reformulate their political economies and their and their way of empire. So could you. Talk a little bit about how the Seven Years' War affected these debates and discussions of France's colonial regime and its political economy. Yeah, I think what really happened with the war is that the Seven Years' War puts all these European powers under extreme stress, mm-hmm. um, both from a local perspective of the various people in the colonies, because suddenly they can't actually uh, get access to the provisions and, 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 and sources of provision that they usually had through because of warfare and trade uh, barriers and, and so on. Um, um, and at the same time, um, at, at the metropolitan level, uh, uh, merchants starting to fear that now because of this, there's all this additional contraband trade going on in the colonies through uh, intercolonial trade that the colonists feel they have to do because they don't have access to uh, their normal supply lines. Um, these these kinds of problems weren't new. Of course, there's always been contraband trade going on. And we also see in the correspondence of the Mirabeau brothers, which is, you know, sort of from 1753 into 1754 and 1755, that there's lots of contraband trade and there's lots of tension between uh, planter interest in the colonies and metropolitan merchants. But what happens in the war is that these tensions just exacerbate uh, tremendously, right? And so um, it leaves particularly the metropolitan merchants and politicians uh, increasingly fearing that um, if, this, if, if we don't deal with this pressure in some way, 
we actually can end up losing these colonies. And that's precisely what starts to happen as we get into the Seven Years' War, because we see um, first the, the French colony of Guadeloupe um, uh, uh, capitulate to the British, British forces, and, uh, during the war. And then a few years after, we see the same thing happening again in Martinique, where Martinique then in, in, in 1762 capitulates to the British as well. And so the French really fear that if we don't start to undertake immediate reform and deal with this issue, actually, even before the war comes to an end, we can end up losing what are some of our most valuable possessions in terms of um, uh, our economy. Um, mm-hmm. because of it, because of the, the existing system of the exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that really is replicated in, uh, in some of the other colonial empires. And we see, therefore, that actually reform is, is uh, not just an, a French thing that happens in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, but it is actually a, a broader uh, trans-European phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And, and is that fear of losing these colonies due to potential revolutions or revolts because of the political economy or opportunities for foreigners to... Uh, con- conquer those islands. Yeah, so that that's interesting because that, of course, de- yeah. depends on on what colony they're looking at, right? Because yeah. they they actually have this discussion, um, not just the Mirabeau brothers, but more broadly, there's this sense we're going to lose the colonies. But um, as the the Mirabeau um, who's in the colonies says, well, yes, we are potentially, but it depends in what way you're thinking about this, because the Caribbean colonies that are sort of built around a monocrop culture of just purely producing sugar, um, they can't sustain themselves without some metropole. So what they are on the lookout for is the metropole that they feel can supply it with um, their essential needs and with enough labor so they can continue to produce their sugar and their cotton and, and their coffee and so on. So for Martinique and Guadeloupe, it's not really independence that they seek. They just seek a better supplier and a better market, right? And for them, it looks like the English are actually doing a better job. So they they want to come. They, they they're quite happy um, uh, to um, capitulate to the British because they think they're going to supply them uh, better than the French. But at the same time, then you have the thirteen colonies where you actually have an interesting parallels, right? Because there, um, this whole discussion about whether they will also rise up in revolt. Um, is more about whether they're actually going to seek independence. And because the 13 colonies are um, uh, able to um, sustain themselves through the, the production of agriculture and, and sort of like budding um, manufacturing, um, um, the, the discussion is that they are actually going to uh, immediately seek independence or ultimately seek independence. And potentially they will then inspire these other colonies um, to join them. Yeah. Yeah. So so in response to this, this crisis, this perceived crisis, what what did the physiocrats propose? So they, they propose a number of things. They have um, um, sort of a w- with one eye to the, the Americas and another eye then to um, to Africa. What they propose in terms of sort of at least prolonging the French relationship with its Caribbean colonies um, because when they start actually publishing, France has lost uh, its uh, holding uh, uh, its holdings on North American main continent, so they've lost Canada, right? And so they say, well, how can we then at least, if if we can't forever preserve our bond with the Caribbean colonies, how can we prolong it for as long as possible? And there they say we actually have to completely rethink how we think about these colonies. We shouldn't think of them as territories that the metropole should just exploit. 
shouldn't think of them as, um, in the, the phrasing they use, as farms of the metropole, right? Where they're just there to produce for us and for our merchants to get rich. Instead, we should think about them as provinces that are similar to um, province, provinces uh, domestically. Mm-hmm. And so they, they actually want to uh, change the whole uh, vocabulary and the way of thinking about empire, right? They want to move away uh, from this way of thinking of them uh, of, as colonies that are inferior to the metropole, to thinking about them as, as having a territorially equal status to the provinces at home. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that's um, definitely uh, definitely an important transition in the in the, in the mentality of, of empire as well. Um, in terms of other commercial liberalization and, and labor regimes, what are some of their ideas? Or do, do those ideas come out of the war, or are those sort of ideas formulating before and then get exacerbated after the war as well? Um, so, so what particularly the physiocrats are proposing at this yes, point? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what they're proposing in terms of trade, and you see this. Uh, actually coming out first in the writings of the uh, Marquis de Mirabeau before he and François Quinet founds the um, physiocratic uh, doctrine, um, he, su- he suggests freer trade, right? So he wants to have uh, intra-imperial uh, uh, free trade, so free trade between the colonies, but also potentially with other colonies and other um, uh, empires. So he's promoting already their free trade, and that's, of course, a perspective that also grows out of his discussions with his, his brother in the colonies. So you can say this whole idea of promoting free trade um, is something that, that uh, many of the planters have been asking for way before that, right? And then it's taken up by these political economists and sort of molded into a theory of free trade. So they're promoting freer trade, and it's something that they also promoted for uh, the, the provinces at home. What they are so famous for, the physiocrats, um, is that they pr- promoted the free c- circulation of grain within France and even internationally, right? So they promote these, these free trade policies at home, and now they want to extend them to the colonies as well. And they do this because they think that through the free circulation of grain or free circulation of sugar or coffee or indigo, or anything else that's generated from the, from the earth, from agriculture, uh, it, it, we will be able to find the best price. And the best price is the one, if you only have one single land tax, that you should make sure you find so that when you tax grain or sugar or coffee or agricultural production, you will have the, be- the, the highest revenues. And, and this high revenue will be a, a, enough of a, of a source uh, for the crown to be able to thrive and build up the, the, the France itself and, and its colonies. So that's the whole idea, right? That's why they emphasize free trade. But they also think that actually um, to be able to produce this agriculture and sugar and coffee, um, you shouldn't use slave labor because they see that as a perverse form of labor that isn't actually um, um, as productive as free labor because the incentive is different. So they also say we should move away from uh, the use of slave labor towards free labor. 
So they actually um, argue three things. They, they, they argue for a shift in the colonies away from the use of slave labor towards free labor. And then they argue for um, a, a liberalization of, of trade. Uh, and then they argue for this whole reconceptualization of a colony so that in the minds of the French, they shouldn't think of it as inferior territories, but as territories that are equal to territories at home. And then they use this phrase overseas provinces. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, and then one particular effect you note um, is the establishment of the uh, Chambre Mipartier de Agriculture et du Commerce on Martinique. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this specific reform and its lasting consequences and effects in Martinique and then perhaps in, in the French Empire as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's um, that that's actually it's interesting because it's 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 kind of the the reform that grows one of the reforms that grows out of the Seven Years' War. It happens already during the war. Is that the the French crown is so nervous that the planters um, in Martinique and Guadeloupe and Saint Domingue are going to uh, rise up in rebellion or um, or, or, or defect to the English that they want to uh, give them something right, throw them a bone right away. So they set up these chambers of um, agriculture and commerce uh, institutions at the local level that will, will allow planters and local merchants to deliberate for, for, for um, what for their needs and to, to write reports and reforms and proposals for how to uh, improve the local situation. And then they get a representative to sit in the uh, Council of Commerce in Paris alongside representatives from uh, France's various cities. So the reform itself is in some ways a step towards recognizing uh, uh, the needs of the colonies and giving them some uh, uh, a sort of like parity with um, the the cities by having them now as, uh, giving them now a seat within the Council of Commerce where uh, France and its commercial policies are debated and discussed. At the local level, though, they also in these chambers then have um, first they're going to have four merchants and then four uh, planters who can then sit and deliberate. And the, the, what I do in, in my book with that is to say, wow, this is actually a wealth of, uh, of uh, information about how these people at the local level uh, engaged with the political economic debates at the metropole and tried to shape and influence reform um, through the, this engagement and through their ability to suddenly communicate both to local governors and also to decision makers in, in Paris and at Versailles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 it's 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 notable too. I think that this is happening during the war. They're they're seeing Guadeloupe fall to the British, and this is a sort of a wartime uh, crisis that they're responding to immediately. But then, obviously, has these repercussions, as you mentioned in your book, that 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 lasts much much more much much farther beyond the war itself. Um, so, moving across to the uh, the Atlantic. Uh, what are some of uh, France's designs for Senegal or Senegambia? And, and why did this region transition in, in some French minds from a, a traditional source of enslaved labor to a potential colony in its own right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the French, it has to be said, and particularly the French crown, uh, uh, it sticks to its policy of just looking at um, uh, its uh, territories in West Africa as a way to find laborers for its, its plantation complex in the Caribbean, right? So at the real high official level, uh, they don't start to see uh, um, 
Senegal or Senegambia as the region for French colonial expansion. What happens is that we have these um, political economists that start seeing it that way. And then we also have um, governors who were sent to West Africa and colonial officials who were sent to West Africa, to, to Senegal, Senegambia, um, um, more broadly, that starts to look at opportunities there. And they, of course, look at this um, well aware that uh, there is a growing crisis in the Americas where France's grip on its colonies there are appearing more and more fragile, more and more vulnerable. So they start thinking, well, can we can we think of an alternative? Can we found of new regions for um, colonial expansion and, and, and exploitation? And they look at, at Africa and they say, wow, there's this whole continent that Europeans haven't really uh, uh, um, started colonizing yet but we absolutely should do that right so that's yeah, what, that's yeah. what they say and then of course part of this is to say they look at um the african population and they say why on earth are we sending all these people across the atlantic um through the uh, and letting them go through the horrors of the middle passage right and, and enslaving them in the colonies and subjecting them to these high degrees of violence there when actually we can potentially cultivate the same things here right mm-hmm. And so they, so so governors uh, that are sent to 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 Gore and 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 and, and, the, and the surroundings there to try to preserve and build up um, the French slave trade there, they on the side start to propose all these projects for colonization, and of course that resonates very very well with the things that the that the physiocrats are uh, also promoting at this time and they are actually very much in dialogue with each other mm-hmm. yeah and, and it's, i think that's a really fascinating transition from empire that obviously has implications for the future french empire which we can talk about um and, and the traditional sort of answers that i received of why europe hadn't tried to colonize uh, Africa in the same way did the the Americas was the the power of African polities and uh, diseases that were more virulent in Africa to uh, Europeans. So are are these conditions ameliorated somewhat in the late later eighteenth century, or is are the physiocrats just a little bit more confident that France can actually accomplish this? No, I mean, if we look at uh, what's happening on the ground, and I, I actually show this in the book, the, the French are completely at the mercy of local African rulers. That's that's for sure. And we also see many of the administrators that are there, they can't stay for a long time because, of course, they're, you know, they're, they're subject to de- disease and many of them also die because, of, you know, yeah, for the reasons that we know so well. Um, so those obstacles are, are really, they're, they're very real. But they are, um, but because uh, there are many smaller islands uh, at the mouth of the Senegal River or, or along the coast, what they're proposing initially is basically to focus on these uh, islands or the, the coastal territories where they feel that the climate is more amenable uh, to Europeans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you can you speak to how these reforms and visions? were reflected in Republican imperial agendas during the French Revolution in the 1790s? Uh, sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say one thing first, if that's okay with you, because you were talking about obstacles to these reforms at the time. Um, but uh, I've, I've, I, one of the things that I show in the book is that it isn't just the power of African polities or disease that is preventing the French from doing it. 
one of the, the things that I was that was I was quite struck to find in, in my research is the fact that it's really also the crown that is trying to block these attempts because you have on the ground French officials that are actually undertaking this um, and they're trying to experiment with this, right? And several of them are trying to set up plantations and they have modest success, but some success with cultivating uh, some of the crops that they also find in the Americas. And we see in reports from the minister, be it Choiseul or some of the later ministers, time and time again, they, they, they're trying to um, make them close down these experiments because what they don't want to see, even if they say, uh, okay, so you have this success, but we don't want you to compete with our colonies in the Caribbean. We don't want the, to risk that you can produce this uh, cheaper than what we're doing in the Caribbean. And of course, it's because they themselves are deeply invested in the plantation complex in the Americas. So an added layer that sort of prevents uh, a full-on sort of a, a experimentation in Senegambia at this period is also that there's actually strong resistance from the resistance from the very top, even though you have people on the ground and also capitalist interests in France and um, growing uh, intellectual communities that are arguing that this is the way forward. So this is just to say because it, it allows me to pivot to your question about so why is this taken up during the French Revolution? Because what, of course, happens in the French Revolution is that uh, the French are actually no longer able to continue their plantation complex in the Caribbean because mm -hmm. you have the slave uprising on saint mm -hmm. And so at that point, once, the, uh, you know, it's not just saint you, of course, also have slave rebellions on Martinique and Guadeloupe and other parts of the French colonies with the revolution. But the big one is really saint -Domain. And at that moment in time, um, all the, the people who have benefited from and invested in and profited from the, the uh, colonial commerce with the Caribbean, they realize that we can't potentially, uh, this won't uh, last forever, right? That we actually are losing this. And then uh, as war breaks out in 1792-93, as, 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 as we know from the literature that studies uh, the abolition of slavery, they actually, the French actually have to go in on Saint-Domingue and abolish slavery in part so that they can recruit uh, uh, the enslaved as soldiers in the army to fight against the British. Mm -hmm. And this is happening at a, at a time where France, of course, is also now proclaiming itself a republic. Mm -hmm. And as they do, they then feel they can divest themselves of this reputation of being, uh, uh, having sort of um, being promoting slavery. Uh, even though slavery continued well into the French Revolution, they can now sort of uh, um, live up to the principles that we found in, in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the first uh, article, of, uh, and, and, and then um, uh, uh, say that it is a republican principle to uh, 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 extend freedom and liberty and equality to our colonies. Uh, and they do this with the abolition of slavery, then which they proclaim in February 1794. But with that, they are also basically admitting we, we don't have the plantation complex anymore. At least we have undercut uh, the, the, the main component of that, which is um, uh, slave labor. And so at that point, these alternative ideas and projects that have been circulating and, and partially experimented with on the ground, particularly uh, in, in, in West Africa, and this idea of, of, of elevating the colonies to um, um, 
uh, overseas provinces and now they switch it to overseas departments. Uh, they sort of are um, integrated into the Republican imperial agenda because it, it's potentially the only way that they can continue their imperial uh, missions here, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how why, even though it had existed for such a long time, and we've seen it grow out of sort of, the, of a, a much earlier imperial crisis, it's the crisis with the Haitian Revolution that makes it uh, possible for the people who promoted it for a long time to suddenly see their projects and ideas elevated to the level of official policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it takes that, that crisis to to open up that possibility, definitely. And um, so you, you, you talk so much and in such great depth about these this confluence of ideas from the colonies and the metropole uh, inspiring these ideas and these reforms that obviously meets against resistance and that resistance sort of conditions responses and the, this, this sort of flow of ideas back and forth. And I, I'm wondering if, if in your research you saw any cross-imperial connections and inspirations. Were physiocrats corresponding with British and Dutch and Spanish political economists as well um, that, you, that you saw that was, that was notable? Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, um, yeah, there there are lots of cross-imperial connections here. And one of the things that was uh, so much fun in doing the research for this book is that I was also able to dive into British uh, archives and Danish archives and mm-hmm. um, and also sort of read a little bit about what was going on there. And there, the, the project, for instance, about thinking about colonial expansion in West Africa based on... Um, what they call or refer to as free labor and moving away from the use of slave labor was not particularly confined to the French, right? So you see similar projects going on almost in competition with the French projects on the ground. Mm-hmm. And and the people um, who are experimenting with it, uh, the French people, they actually write to the crown and say, we, we really better get going on this because the English are starting to think about it and do it. And we also see the Danes or the Swedish and so on, right? So there is this, there are these um, cross-imperial connections to trace mm-hmm. And the same thing for the for the political economists that are writing. So um, the first time that I see the the uh, one of the political economists that are going to join the 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 officially join the Frisiocrats, his name is uh, the Abbe Robu. Before he joins the Frisiocrats, he he works for the Journal of Commerce that reviews. Um, 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 writings uh, that are produced in, in Amsterdam or in London or other parts of Europe. And then he translates it into French if it needs mm-hmm. translating and then he comments on it. And one of the pieces that he comments on is a piece produced by Malachi Pulselwit, um, who was a, an Englishman who uh, worked from the English Africa Com- Company and had, had written about why the English should um, attack and conquer Senegal during the Seven Years' War. But he also wrote other pieces about you know, potentially um, colonizing Africa and, and creating plantations there. And so um, Wobo takes uh, and translates this piece into French and starts discussing it. And then he further develops this idea by connecting it to the ideas of the Marquis de Mirabeau about exporting civilization to Africa. This is an idea that Mirabeau articulates already in 1756. And then uh, they slowly start to, 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 to sort of merge these different strands of thought together to, to craft their own, um, uh, their own vision. And of course, that's inspired a lot also by what's happening outside of France and in intellectual uh, communities elsewhere. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating that uh, those transfer of ideas uh, between and, and across empires. Now, so you you talked about these reforms and visions having real cachet and influence in the French Revolution, but could you speak to sort of more contemporary times or the quote unquote second? Uh, French Empire. How did this physiocratic vision and these ancien regime reform efforts condition these post-Napoleonic imperial designs? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, well, it's it's uh, it was a question I asked myself, and I first had I think a rather naive response to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm a historian of particularly sort of the old. Uh, regime and its colonies and not so much about the, what happens later on. But I was uh, well aware of how we think of the what we historians refer to as the second colonial empire as often being about the mission to civilize. And this mm-hmm. whole idea, particularly during Third Republic, of exporting French civilization to Africa and how they that was sort of the... the, the, the um, ideology that that legitimized their imperial mission there later on right and i was thinking wow that's very interesting there are clear connections here between the two why is it um that these early ideas about exporting civilization to africa isn't connected more uh, clearly to what happens later on and why is it exactly that we constantly um prevent ourselves from speaking across the two colonial empires so the way we think about them as a as an early modern French colonial empire, what we call the first colonial empire, when which is then uh, finished or ending more or less with the French Revolution, and then this rise of a second colonial empire. And we are sort of historians that are operating in two camps. We don't really speak much to each other. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so, so what you know, my my thinking of so how are these connected? And initially, as I said, I had a rather naive response to it, thinking well, they're clearly connected because uh, they have a very similar language in thinking about. Uh, what the French could do for Africa by by exporting its civilization there, and how then um, Africa should uh, uh, attain civilization through through the the um, its production of of um, cash crop commodities and raw materials, which France could then purchase in exchange for manufactured goods, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, what I discovered. Uh, um, as I started reading more about uh, the later periods, there were also really uh, uh, strong differences. So I'm not trying to say it's exactly the same. There are many, many differences too. Um, but what I realized that was that what I saw as innovation in the first French colonial empire, uh, so these ideas that we've been discussing today, um, were happening alongside, as I explained in the book, th- this more conventional or, or, or all-pervasive approach to colonial empire that were based on the plantation complex, based on this kind of um, uh, uh, um, trade privileges and exclusive commercial rights to the metropole, and um, based on particular laws for the colonies that didn't apply in the metropole. But actually, what I realized that the second colonial empire had lots of these elements too going on, right? So there are so there are um, continuities in the, ta- in the in the same sense that many of the traditional uh, uh, and old law uh, things that we find in the first colonial empire researched and underpinned some of the things we see in the second colonial empire. For instance, with what they call refer to as the Pact Familial, which is still or Pact Colonial, which is still this kind of um, the the colonies and the metropole should trade together and only with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then what we see as sort of novelty and innovation in the colonial empire also in some ways structure uh, French um, imperial expansion, for instance, through this idea of, of civilization, but also in the struggle between France and it's what it refers to in the later periods as its old colonies, so the Vieille Colonie be, being Martinique and, and Guadeloupe, and this struggle between the metropole and these colonies in, 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 in finding uh, a relationship that sort of works for both of them that actually ends up being what it is today, which is when they think of these colonies as France's overseas departments, right? So they are now Mm-hmm. conceptualized as overseas departments, right? So there are really interesting continuities between this idea of thinking about uh, what the Frisiocrats promoted as overseas provinces and the way this struggle towards thinking about the colonies as overseas departments. And there are interesting continuities between the way they were thinking about France's, um, or how it saw France as being able to potentially civilize uh, uh, Africa and how the Third Republic were thinking about its mission in in particularly big parts of Western Northern Africa, right? But I also want to emphasize that there are really also huge differences here, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. continuity is 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 an interesting um, concept to work with because it, it can operate both in terms of novelty and in terms of sort of more um, uh, uh, all pervasive uh, elements of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So based on the last uh, couple of questions and and the book in general, I think you do a really great job at intervening intervening in two major topics or themes that seems like most 18th century French colonial historians at least should comment on, which is some of the origins of the French Revolution and French revolutionary ideology and designs. And like you just talked about, this quote-unquote transition from the first French empire and the quote-unquote second French empire. Um, I'm wondering if you were always sort of confident that you want to make interventions in, in both of these major major topics. Uh, I was probably overconfident. <laughs> <laughs> I have to yeah. say, um, yeah, I was probably overconfident because yeah. I, I, um, I was far more at home in, in, in the first colonial empire and I thought I knew much more about what was going on in the second colonial empire. So um, I, as I say, I think I was overconfident, but <laughs> I knew that I wanted to, 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 to um, create a dialogue between the two fields. I knew that I was seeking to do that, right? But I think what came out in the book, hopefully, is a more humble suggestion <laughs> <laughs> uh, than the one I had initially <laughs> in my <Yeah>. mind. But <laughs> also, I think um, I, I also wanted to show uh, new things about the French Revolution, which as a connector in some ways, right? It's not a point of departure for developments that happened in the second colonial uh, uh, um the colonial empire, and it, it's not this new starting point. It's also just basically um, continuing all these efforts that were going on on the margins and, and among intellectual and political um, uh, communities in France during the old regime, right? And mm-hmm. and so it's um, it's about understanding how continuity and rupture and innovation and persistence and tradition are constantly interlocked, you know, mm-hmm. through through histo- historical processes. Yeah, and, and and a mixture of confidence and humility sometimes is 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 good to have there. That's, that's <laughs> great. Uh, what's the what's a particularly surprising or unexpected thing that you learned from this study? I think, like many of us, when we go to the archives, we don't know what to expect. 
Um, and so before I went, I had been reading uh, a lot of the published work by political economists, and I was quite well aware of their discourse and their vocabulary. And I wanted to be able to sort of understand that and have a good sense of that before I went into read um, the colonial archives. Mm-hmm. And um, I had hoped that I would find resonances in there, but I wasn't at all sure of it. Mm-hmm. So I I think that when I went through boxes of colonial material and uh, I found, you know, either like actual phrases that are taken out from text in these colonial documents, or I found, found concepts in these colonial comments, uh, uh, documents, I'm sure you could have seen me sort of jump from my chair in, <laughs> in the archives. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those moments where you look around and you're so happy and, you, and everybody else is staring at you thinking, what's going on? Exactly. So, yeah, that, you know, the, the yeah. fact that there were these really clear connections between what we think of as sort of like a, an intellectual canon that has been published mm-hmm. and all of these uh, pieces of, of, of documents in the form of memoirs and reports and letters to me, that was very exciting, and it, and 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 what, while I had hope for it, um, it was very nice to, to see those um, resonances in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so finally, um, as the last question, we always like to ask, uh, what what are you planning on next? What are what are any projects uh, or publications on the horizon for you? Yeah. Um, so part of what I do is to continue my work on the French colonial empire um, um, by looking at uh, other um, colonies and Martinique and Guadeloupe. So I'm, I have uh, some of the documents from the chambers of uh, agriculture and commerce from from the other colonies. And I'm interested in looking at how uh, uh, what they have to say about economic reform and the kind of language they use. But um, I'm actually starting uh, to move into a uh, whole new project, which is not about the French colonial empire, but about the Danish colonial empire. Mm. And so uh, my next project is um, going to be about, um, it's, I, I sort of have a, a working title, which is A Gateway to Empire. And it's mm. going to explore the 18th century French colonial empire, but predominantly through the eyes of the foreigners that moved through it, either um, personally or invested their capital in it. Um, so it's going to be this kind of trans-imperial history of the French colonial empire. Wow, that that sounds fascinating and very much looking forward to seeing that in print. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Rui, for this uh, wonderful discussion and, and for your time today. Um, Economies and the Reinvention of Empire is out now via Cambridge University Press. And for the New Books Network, this is uh, our Grant Kleiser saying thank you and see you next time.